If you're following the news, and you maybe gave up on it a long time ago, and I would not criticize you for that. (laughs) But you know that we've had something in the news relative to Donald Trump and the Russia, Russia, Russia thing. And I find myself, as we move through the Scriptures time and again, thinking about how we just keep repeating what is here, how much these reflect the reality of how man lives and what he does. Because today, or if you've been following the Trump thing, you know that there, it began like this. There were spies that did their spying. And they created a dossier. And from the dossier, that's their report, from their report, there was created a narrative. And out of the narrative, then, we wind up with two different conclusions at this point. Two different things. There are those who believe without a doubt that Donald Trump colluded with the Russians to uh, throw the election in his favor. And there are those who say there's nothing there. And it all began with some spying that took place. What I find with the whole thing is it's taking forever. I'm just frustrated with it because it's like not only is it taking all this time because I have been interested by it, but now I'm like, this thing is never going to get done. It's just taking forever. Well, today, we're going to deal with the same thing. We're going to see spies, a report, a narrative, differing views on how to interpret what's there. And in order to get all of that under our belt, we've got to look at a lot of Scripture. And it'll feel like it's taking forever. But if you'll join with me, In the book of Numbers, as we move through our series, book, chapter, and verse, from a landscape perspective, we just need to understand a couple things about the book of Numbers, just the overall big picture of Numbers. It differs from Leviticus. You recall Leviticus took place in one month's time at the foot of Mount Sinai. They went nowhere. Numbers begins from there, takes off from Mount Sinai, winds up ultimately across from Jericho in the plains of Moab, about 40 years have passed. Most of those 40 years are not accounted for. We get their first little time as they leave from, uh, from Mount Sinai, and then we see the last couple of years, and we skip. It's like two different, entirely different uh, generations, actually, is what it is of God's Word being revealed to them. And in Numbers chapters 13 and 14, we're going to come to understand why there's this big break between the beginning of the book and the end of the book. Numbers chapter 13. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel from each tribe of their fathers. You shall send a man, and every one a leader among them. We have this situation where the people have now, they have moved from Mount Sinai. It's been a relatively brief journey while they've come up there at the south side of the promised land. This is the land promised way back to Abraham. And they're at the south end of it, and it's time for them to go in and displace the people groups that are there. God's judgment is to fall on them. You will recall that in in our last text, 
God said that the, what their, the way they were living was an abomination to him. And we saw that his displacing them was his judgment upon them as his holy people now are going to move in and they're going to take that place that was promised to them. In verses 3 to verse 16, we have the men named who go out from each tribe. We are not going to remember their names, so we're going to pass over that. We're going to jump down and pick it up in verse 17. Then Moses sent them, those that were named, to spy out the land of Canaan, and said to them, Go up this way into the south and go up to the mountains, and see what the land is like, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are forests there or not. Be of good courage, and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land, from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rahab, uh, near the entrance of Hamoth. And they went up through the south and came to Hebron, Ami, Sheshai, and uh, Talmai, and the descendants of Anak were there. Now, Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. There's a lot of historical data. Now, understand one thing. These locations are real places that the people to whom this was first written knew those places. Some of them are lost to us now. Some of them we know where they are. But they are real places. Then they came to the valley of Eskol, and there cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes. They carried it between two of them on a pole. This cluster of grapes was so heavy, it was going to take two men to carry it. They also brought some of the pomegranates and figs. The place was called the Valley of Eskol because of the cluster, of, uh, because of the cluster which the men of Israel cut down there. And they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. And so the spies go in from the south, and David, I think if you could get us a little something visually, it will help. You understand what took place? Forty days these spies went into the land. Let's just kind of see where we've been. Right up here is the promised land. Okay, we had Hebron referenced in there. But let's just remember how this thing has come down to this point. God promised to Abram way back in Genesis 12, he'd give him a land. That land would be right up here. It's the land of Israel, okay? Uh, he was there, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob with his 12 sons, eventually had to come into Egypt to wait out a famine. They waited out the famine. It gets to be almost 400 years later. They become a great nation because God had also promised to Abraham they'd be a great nation. So God is going to birth a nation. So this nation is birthed out of Egypt when God uh, destroyed the gods of Pharaoh and destroyed their army. The people we read, the people saw when they crossed the Red Sea, as God had divided it, they saw Pharaoh and they saw his, his, um, uh, his chariots on the shore when they were drowned. God brings them now down right here to Mount Sinai. Here's Mount Sinai where they spend a year and God reveals to them plans for the tabernacle and they build the tabernacle and God takes up his residence in the tabernacle. And then for a month... After all of that, during the book of Leviticus, he gives them instruction that when you get into the land, here's what you're going to do. And that's why we said that was like really slow going in there because it's all these instructions. So now he's leading them up to Kadesh Barnea. Now in Kadesh Barnea, about, we're told in Deuteronomy, that's about an 11-day journey to here. 11 days is all we're talking about. 
And then they are to send out spies. Check out the land. All of those things that we just read about. Is it good? Is it bad? Are the cities like camps, meaning they're unwalled and it'd be easy to to, to remove men from a camp? Or are they fortified? So they sent out the spies. They brought back some of the fruit. They did exactly what they would do. And it took 40 days to do that. They got a pretty good picture as to what it was like there. Now we're going to pick it up in Numbers 13, verse 26. Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Then they told him and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. So they're describing where the different people groups are that were within this land that they that they spied out. Then Caleb quieted the people, verse 30, before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants. The descendants of Anak came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. And so we get this report. Spies went out, came back, brought a report. And now a narrative begins to develop around this particular report. And the narrative is, by the ten spies, there's no way that we can do anything to displace these people. Because they are big. They're all big. Do you see that all the people whom we saw it are men of great stature? That, of course, wasn't true. The descendants of Anak were of great stature. But it doesn't mean everybody was of great stature. But now we begin to see this narrative taking place. And so it moves on. Chapter 14, verse 1. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. And the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness, why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes, and they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, 
The land we pass through to spy out is exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before the children of Israel. This is quite a moment that unfolds here. The spies come back. They exaggerate the story. They're scared to death by what they have seen. They say it is impossible to displace these giants throughout the land. And they even send up this cry, if only we died in Egypt, it would have been better to die in the wilderness than now to try and displace these people and die at the hand of the sword. And Joshua and Caleb, after Aaron and Moses, Aaron and Moses just fall on their faces before the Lord because they're not sure what to do at this point, and they're just pleading with God. And Joshua and Caleb speak up, and they say, we can do this. If God is pleased with us, we can do this. If God is on our side, we can do this. In fact, don't rebel. This would be rebellion to not go in because God has said we are to go in and take the land that He is giving us. And to do otherwise is to be in disobedience to Him. So don't rebel. In fact, I thought it was interesting that He said, uh, we, will, we will eat them like bread. We will destroy them. What do we say nowadays? We say, we'll eat their lunch. All right? But that's it. So we're gonna, we will consume them. There's no problem here, people. Let's go in. Do not defy God and the people then. Because they bought into the narrative. The narrative of the bigger crowd picked up stones to stone them. There's just another element. I'm just going to touch on it and go uh, with this. But I thought as I'm reading this, I thought, you know, here's another thing that we're seeing happening that is, in our, that is within the context of our, our culture today. I'm amazed how many times what I'm reading in Old Testament is the same stuff happening today. Because what were these people willing to do? Let's get leaders and go back to Egypt. What are they willing to do? They're ready to trade liberty for security. This, this to them is a bargain worth making. Let's trade liberty... For security, this very, very sad situation of yet another school shooting. But there's always the voices in, after these things that say, let's trade liberty, take away our guns for security so the government will protect us. That's what we are asking for. That's our people pounding that drum. We'll trade our liberty for our security. As well as, this happens all the time, when Joshua and Caleb spoke up, what did they want to do? Stone them, put them to death, silence their voice. Is that not common to our culture today? Are we, are we engaged in a culture where it's the, the point is, hey, let's have some thoughtful dialogue? Let's have thoughtful dialogue about what's happening? No, we're out to destroy you. That's what we will do. We will destroy you. We will destroy your voice. And if you're not aware of it, there are a number of places in college campuses 
where voices that would embrace a biblical worldview are not being allowed to speak. They will, they will just silence them. And they will do it violently if need be while calling people who are conservative, um, you know, haters and uh, that kind of thing. But anyways, I thought, there they are. We're, we're going to keep going from that. I just thought those are two more elements that I'm seeing in this that are just exactly what we are seeing today. So, God makes himself known, and um, I see where I'm at here, okay? Oh, yeah, let's pick it up in verse 20. All right, let's drop down to verse 20. So, Moses pled the people's case because God is ready to destroy them. And when we pick it up in verse 20, we read this. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, and because Moses pled that if you just destroy these people, then everybody's going to know you. We're going to conclude you couldn't deliver your people. But truly as I live... All the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of them, of those who rejected me, see it. But my servant, Caleb, because he has a a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land uh, where he he went, and his descendants shall inherit it. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valley. Tomorrow turn and move out into the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. Dave, is it possible to bring that back, or is that too hard to do quickly? Can you bring that back? I'm just looking for the, just, I just want the map back. I'm sorry, that wasn't very clear. Can the map come back for a moment? I just want to clarify. We've been down here, we were here, we send in spies. Now what God has just told the people of Israel, told Moses, here's what you're going to do now. You're going to turn around and rather than enter the land, like you had the privilege of my giving it to you right now, rather than entering it, you're going to turn back. And for the next about 37 years... They are going to wander. If you ever hear the phrase, wilderness wanderings, that's what we're talking about. And those wanderings were real. They took place. And they are going to last. Ultimately, it'll take them 40 years to get into the land total. Um, But they're going to wander because they refused to enter the land when God told them to enter the land. Now notice, I'm going to pick it up down in verse 30. Except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. But your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness, and your sons shall, fall, shall uh, be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness, according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days. For each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely forty years, and you shall know my rejection. I, the Lord, have spoken this. I will surely do so to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be consumed and they shall die. Which is what they said was their better thing. Oh, it would be better if we died in the wilderness. He's like, okay, I'll take you at your word. And he's going to let them wander for all this time till all of those 20 years and older have died off. Except for Caleb and Joshua. They are going to have the privilege because they were of a different spirit. And that's his 
That's his judgment upon them. Now, when you start up in chapter 15, you're picking up the narrative about 37 years later. See, these two chapters sit right between that, that 11-day journey to Horeb, or to, uh, to Kadesh Barnea, and then the end, where they're now going to make that final push. They're actually going to enter the land uh, when the time comes. But 37 years are just lost. There's nothing recorded for us. Nothing told us what took place there. No great, magnificent accomplishments. Gone. And that's, if nothing else, for a literary purpose, but just showing how lost that time was, how wasted it was, how serious God was in his judgment upon the people, that when they disobeyed him and would not take the land, he's like, okay, you're done. So when they finally do line up on the east side of the Jordan River, and they are going to take the land, it's a whole new generation that has come up. A whole new generation that needs to hear the word of God again and be instructed so that they will actually follow the Lord. And then we'll see that in the book of Deuteronomy. Here's my point, friend. The decision of the crowd was a disaster. The decision of the crowd who followed those who brought a bad report was a disaster. And they were left to languish for all those years and die according to their own request. And never again see God's hand do this miraculous thing. And one of the things God said to him was, Look, I've already shown you. I've shown you. Our core verse in all of this, that verse in which we're trying to bore down a little bit, that verse which we're trying to memorize. By the way, just a reminder that there are cards. I picked these up this morning. They're older memory cards if you weren't here on the Sundays when you could have gotten them. But our core verse is in verse 33. It's the report that Joshua and Caleb brought. Or excuse me, it's from the report that the ten brought. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so, so we were in their sight. And friends, as we step away from this, we understand this context, I hope now, as a whole of this, uh, uh, of this account. As we step away from it, because now we have it under our belts, I'd like to just tie it together with three thoughts. Number one, it's a mistake to let others define us. It is a mistake to let others define us. Notice that the, this verse ends, I'm taking it from the back end, and so we were in their sight. We were what? We were grasshoppers in their sight. I can imagine the spies who went out, and they're having coffee at the Horeb Cafe, and they overhear the sons of Anak laughing about these, this group of people in the south end of, of their land. Go, yeah, who, they think they're going to get in here. They think they can touch us. And just laughing about how they will just destroy these guys. Because he says, they, these guys had a sense that we can knock those guys off with it and absolutely no trouble whatsoever. And they begin to believe the report, or they begin to believe what the giants are saying. They're just puny. Can you imagine them trying to take on us in our fortified cities as big as we are and as small as they are? This will be fun. We'll crush them like grasshoppers. We'll stomp, and they believed it. 
But friends, it's a mistake to let others define us. You see, here's the reality. There will always be someone who is more something. More beautiful, more handsome, more talented, more wealthy, taller, more petite, stronger, more curvaceous, more intelligent, more humorous, more compassionate, more kind, more soft-spoken, more assertive, more bold, more cautious, more humble, more self-confident, more gentle, more abrasive. Then there are times where in any of those circumstances we wish we were more of those things. There's always somebody who's more than us in those things. And if we let that define us, we will never measure up. What kind of authority? Here's the question we need to ask ourselves. To those who we have allowed to define us, what authority do they have to speak the definition of who we are? What authority did the giants have to speak about the capabilities of the Israelites? They had none. They didn't know what they were talking about. When God gets behind the Israelites, the giants are gone. They. But friends, there are always those who will have more of something that we wish we were more this way or that way. And if we let that define us, we'll never measure up to anything so it's a mistake to let others define us by some false standard that is there. See, because nobody is more in everything, specific things, where some are more than others, but nobody's more than in everything towards one another. All right, so it's even a mistake. Here's the second thing I want us to to define ourselves. Well, if I'm not going to let them define, I'll define myself. I'd like to suggest that's a mistake also. That I'm going to define myself and I'm going to be this special person and I'm going to be this incredible thing. Because we're too biased in the evaluation. We're way too personally invested in that. You see, because when we come to that place where we might, and it might be an honest assessment because God has gifted different people in a different way, we say, I'm, I'm more than them on this. What follows right behind that statement? What comes right in behind it? The pride is right there, ready to settle into our hearts. See, because we've now set up a false standard. We've now set up the standard. In this area where I actually may be more gifted than them becomes the only thing that matters. All right? So, I mean, here, here we are. Look at all these musical instruments, okay? All right? Evan can readily and rightfully say, you know, look at me because I am way more musically capable than him. And he's right. He can get proud about that. What he's missing is how much better looking I am than him. Okay? So we all got something that's working, okay? That's how it is. But pride comes right behind it. 
every time. Or our biased evaluation plays this game on us. You see, we're not as good in some places, true for everybody, and then what comes right behind it is the shame. I should be more like them. I wish I had what they had. I'm not as good as them. I'll never measure up to them. And so we belittle ourselves because we are so biased in this thing. And friends, the way we're going to do it is the whole comparison thing, and that's deadly. Can we remind ourselves of that? Living our lives in basis of comparison to others is deadly. Because that's not what God has in store for us. The mistake in letting others define us, or even in defining ourselves is ultimately we leave out the most important element. We tend to miss God's good work in us, God's involvement with us. And that's why I say it's not a mistake to let God define us, to understand His work in our lives and say, this is who I am. It is what God is doing in me. See, God's anger anger was aroused with them. Why? One, they were dismissing his command to go in because he said, go in, take the land which I am giving to you. He promised it to Abraham centuries before. It's now their blessing to go in and take it. And they go, nope, don't think so. Don't think you can pull this one off, God. We'd rather stay out here in the wilderness. And his anger is especially aroused, as he says to them, because he has repeatedly shown them They were the ones, understand, friends, they were the ones who stood at the Red Sea and watched God part the waters and watched as they crossed on dry land. And then the Egyptians came across and the waters closed on them. And it says, and they saw the chariots on the shore. God demonstrated his ability to destroy Pharaoh and his army. He can handle what is here, but they rejected it. They kept God out of the perception. And that, of course, is exactly what Joshua and Caleb were saying. If God is pleased to do this, we can't lose, guys. We will eat their lunch. But you see, when we get caught up in this just comparison game, we forget the perspective as to what God is doing. So I've just got Three more quick passages that I want to get you, give to you that I want you to have in place to always remind us on how to keep the perspective in the right place. I don't let others define me. I don't even try and define myself. I'm seeking to understand what God is doing here and how He has defined me. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul writes this, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Verse 2, Moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. It's a small thing to me that any of you will judge me. I'm not looking for your assessment of me. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I'm not even trying to lay my own assessment on this thing. That isn't significant either, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this. He says, I don't know of anything that I think is an issue, but that isn't why, uh, what I hold on to. I don't, in pride, go, yeah, there's nothing against me. He says, that isn't even what I'm looking to. 
I've dealt with all the issues. He says, but he who judges me is the Lord. That's what Paul says. My perspective of who I am comes entirely from my connection with his work in my life and how he has redeemed me, the chief of all sinners, the one who persecuted his church. But he has redeemed me and he is doing a work in my life and that's all that I cling to. Not you, not me, only him. So there's one passage that'll help us. Romans chapter 12, where most of us perhaps are familiar with Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, present your bodies, living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God, which is reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay? All right. You may prove what is a good and acceptable, perfect will of God. We're used to that. We say that a lot, so we all know that one, okay? But don't miss verse 3 that follows. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. I love that. It's think clearly. Think with a mind that can see what is reality here. As God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. See, that comes down to this thing of, yeah, Evan's got the gift of music that I don't have. Okay, I don't have that function in the body of Christ. So I can't be compared to him on that, nor should I compare others to stuff that I might have that they don't have. We just stop with that foolishness. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us then, and he goes on to say, how's how you use your giftedness. But what is Paul saying there? Saying, here's how you assess what is going on with your life and in the body of Christ as you present yourself, that holy sacrifice, that was last last week, as you want to live that holy life before God, here's what, where it begins. Get a clear understanding of what God is doing in your life and don't make comparisons with others in the body. It's about what God is doing in your own life. That's what you want to identify. And stop with somehow thinking that because I got this gift, I'm better than this person who doesn't have th- this gift because over here they have a different gift. And each one is ordained by God in the body of Christ to be effective, that together we are influencing one another. But who am I? I'm somebody who is special. Who are you? Someone who is special, whom God has gifted, using you in the body of Christ, using me according to His design, and that's all that matters. And friends, This is the dynamic, if we will get hold of this, that breaks the pride-shame cycle and allows God to define us, His redemptive work in us. We gather our sense of self from Him, which is why Ephesians 2.10 is so interesting. For you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works that God has before ordained, that you should walk in them. See, that's, the, that's our own land. If we can take that, do you understand what I'm saying? God has ordained each of us to have a place in his kingdom 
where he already has things he wants us to do and to accomplish. He's laying them out before us if we're willing to seek them. They are there. It is where we will do the thing that he has called us to in the kingdom. That's available to us. And just as he was telling the people of Israel, go in, take the land for your generation right now. That's what I'm asking you to do. There are things which he is saying to us, here's how I want you to serve. Here's how you are going to be effective in the body of Christ because this is the gifting I've given to you for this time, for this geographical place where you are in, for my purposes for you. That's who you are. And don't let anything deter you from that. That's the land each of us is to take, that unique place that God has given us and said, here's where I want you to work. Here's how I want you to serve. And when we can stay on that place, on message there, we can stop at the pride. We can stop at the shame. We can have a good and holy view that God is at work in me and in you and in you in you and in you and we can respect it in each other and we don't have to continue on with this thing where we always lose this this what I think is actually a spiritual battle where the evil one puffs us up wants us to get puffed up feeling real good about ourselves because we're really something special or he wants to put us down and make us feel like we're just the lowest piece of dirt that there ever was and there's not life in either of those places. There's nothing life-giving in either of them. The life-giving place we live is where we are in continual fellowship with God, understanding, Lord, here's what you're calling me to, and here's how you've gifted me. And here's what you're ask, how you're asking me to use these gifts. And there, it's fun. God uses us. We're in good relationship with others. We're at peace about ourselves. That's where the joy is, friends. And I pray that God would deliver us from this deadly comparison that will either push us into pride or defeat us with shame. But let's just remember, we are people redeemed by God, and He's doing the work in us. Father, thank You. Thank You. And Lord, I know that there are people here, I know because I'm one of them, Things have been spoken into our lives. We have seen, heard things spoken about us or we've, we have gone in a direction whereby we just feel like we're absolute grasshoppers, that we could never be used by you, that we cannot trust you for anything, that we are completely worthless, Father. And I pray that you will enable us to see the redemptive work that you are doing, that we are not alone, that it's us in Christ that it's us redeemed by Christ, that it's your magnificent eternal work that you're doing in our lives, Lord. That's what identifies us. And when we keep our identity committed to you and connected to you and bound by you and bound in you, Father, there's hope and there's joy and there's goodness and there's freedom. No shame, no pride, just delight in the work you are doing. Oh, Lord, strengthen us to live in that place. May we be no longer defeated by our perception of things that are just not real. May we live in that reality of who we are in Christ, I ask in his precious name. Amen.